If you brought a Bible, you can open it to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be looking primarily at verses 16 to 18. But I will read for us uh, 16 to 24. Sorry. Um, Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 16, chapter 3 of 1 John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. And just as he has commanded us, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray now that as we think about your commandment to us to love one another and as we look at it from a perhaps different angle from 1 John, that you would open our eyes and ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. Would you teach us? Be our guide this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a parable that you might be familiar with in Matthew 13. It's called the parable of the hidden treasure. I'm gonna read it for you here in a second. Extra scripture reading for you this morning or evening. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I'm sure if you've been in the church, you've probably have come across that, heard that parable before. When I, uh, growing up, often hearing this parable, I was often told this parable and, and, and asked to identify it from the perspective of the man in the parable who wanting the treasure hidden in this field, sells everything in order to buy the field. And in so doing, I think as part of the lesson is, you know, you, you think about what your treasure is and what is the thing that you would give everything up for in order to obtain it. Um, that's kind of how that parable would work if you identified with the man. But here's my question. What if, what if we weren't supposed to identify ourselves with the man, but we're actually supposed to identify ourselves with the treasure? What if I, it was Jesus, the one who's actually telling the parable, what if it's him that is the man, and because of how he sees you as treasure, he gives up all that he is and all that he has in order to have you? It's an interesting psychological study, if you ask me. 
Do you naturally see yourself as the one who is trying to care about God enough in such a way that you would give up everything that you had to possess it? Or do you dare see yourself as treasure in the eyes of God who in Jesus gave up everything, his glory, in order to have you? Now, to be honest, it's probably fine to read it both ways. I'm not necessarily saying that one is uh, one reading is the, the right one and one's the wrong one, but I would actually submit that for tonight, John would have us take the latter approach, to dare to see yourself as Jesus sees you, as treasure in a field so valuable that he would give up everything just to have you. And the reason John would have you take the latter is because in order to love others, as Jesus commands us this evening, you must know that you are loved. I want to look at two things from John's epistle, um, and that is really the nature of love and then a characteristic of love found in Christ. So I want to look at the nature of love, but a characteristic as well found in the love that Christ gives us out of himself. As we begin here looking at verses 16 to 18, and as we look at perhaps maybe what is not a too much of a familiar book, I don't know if that's the right way to put that. Um, first John is interesting, and then second and third John, of course, the follow. But uh, just for the sake of a little bit of statistics or uh, background, um, we all believe that this is the author of First John is the same author as the Gospel of John, which would be the son of Zebedee, which would be one of the apostles of Jesus. This is that same John, just in case you were wondering. And as we go through First John and as we consider it's his audience, we, we find out pretty quickly that John is writing to Christians, and one of the things that he's interested in is how do Christians live in a world that still has evil in it? And as we come across verses like 1 John 5, 19, we, where he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And his his whole aim here is to try to encourage and instruct believers who are living in, an, in, in a post-resurrected age but are still experiencing the challenges of living here as well. Many look at chapter 4, verse 4, as sort of a, a summary statement for a theme for John in this epistle where he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, referring to any spirit not from God, for, who he, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, right? You probably have that printed somewhere and, and up on a wall or whatever, but what could be more instructive and encouraging than to know that the spirit of God who is in you by virtue of your union with Christ, which is his vindication, his resurrection and his ascension, and then him pouring forth his spirit uh, onto those who believe, thereby, thereby uniting himself to them, what could be more encouraging to know that that spirit is greater than any other spirit in the world? From here, John will go on to say, Beloved, let us then love one another, for love is from God and love is God. Essentially, what John has for his people, what words of encouragement and instruction in a world where it Yes, we live in a post-resurrected Jesus world where the kingdom is inaugurated, but it still feels like evil wins out at times, which might actually be some of your experiences as well. John's instruction is to love as you have been loved. 
It's not to run away. It's not to escape. It's not to just sort of sit tight and wait until you either die or Jesus returns. It's actually in that context in which we read verse 16, this is how we know what love is, that he gave himself for us. And we ought to do the same for our brothers. And this is where he gets to the nature, what I would say the nature of love as we move into verses 17 and 18. And he goes on to explain, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Or in other words, how, where does love, God's love show up? And what John is getting at is that the nature of love isn't something that we just think about. It isn't something that we just sort of think fondly about, but love requires expression and action, right? Which, which at this point, I might be having words with John, especially as I'm living in a place where I'm probably experiencing persecution on many, many levels and fronts, that what John is saying for me to do is that he's actually asking me to love one another as Christ has loved me. In other words, he is saying, you're... Your love has to land somewhere. You have to move into this world. You have to move towards one another because love, the nature of love, is that it must be expressed in action. And John takes this simple illustration of someone who has resources and means and who sees someone who doesn't have resources and means, yet who is still in need, yet the person who has all the resources and means closes their heart against them, the text says. In other words, the love they have the love that they may claim to have, it has no expression. And John's point is not to say, well, if this, uh, if you have ever done this before, <laughs> if you have, um, you know, ever treated somebody this way, then the love of God is not in you. It's not what John's saying. Rather, he is simply illustrating his point that love of any kind must express itself in action for it to be love. And why can John say this? And this takes us back to 16 because of what he has seen in Jesus. And that's why he writes, by this we know love. By this we know love that he laid, him, him, laid down his life for us. This is the nature of love, according to John at least, that it expresses itself in action. And for John, until his audience knows and experiences that love personally, can they begin to love one another what as Christ has loved them? But for John, there's, there's more than just love expressing itself in action, right? And this gets to the characteristic of love found in Christ that is somewhat unique and actually helps us more to understand and define what love is in the first place. And that is commitment, the cross, which John is referring to in verse 16, is better understood as the level of commitment that Jesus had towards sinners, which led him there, though it was a one-time act of love. All of us can at one time or another demonstrate or express love in action. We might be super gifted at rushing in in the midst of crisis or giving ourselves to those in need, and that's great. We should do that. But John wants to show us something unique about love that Jesus embodies perfectly, and that is the love of Christ characterized by the commitment to sinners. In John's gospel, John 13, he notes this in the upper room 
before Jesus washed the disciples' feet, saying, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What John is reminding his audience of is not just that Christ's love is real because it expressed itself in action, which it did, but that it's steadfast. It is characterized by commitment. I love doing marital counseling or premarital counseling specifically. Um, and I love asking the question, especially um, as, as, you know, you have two engaged, you've engaged, not two engaged couples, but an engaged couple here. And uh, asking the question, you know, why do you want to get married? And after a bunch of nice things that are said about the other, the phrase, well, I, I just, I love this person, typically shows up. And it's not that I have a problem uh, with, with, with this when it's said, but what's clear on my side of the table, having been married for 16 years, is you don't know what you're talking about. Now, I don't say that. I won't say that to you. I'll think that, but I won't say that, right? But to be fair, what, what they are actually saying is, is, is a good thing. They're saying that in marriage, in marriage, is that this, is what I, this is what I want, I want to love this person. That is, I want to commit myself to this person for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, for, for sickness or in health, forsaking all others but you. Now, that's not to say that you can't love someone if you're not married to them. Of course you can. But the type of love that Jesus offers that John is pointing to is not the kind that comes and goes or wavers depending on mood. It's a love that is characterized by commitment. It is to say, I've always been here for you. I will always be here for you. And I, I always have been and I always will be here for you. And so when we ask, right, is there a difference between the, the high school uh, boy who says, I love you to his high school girlfriend after two dates versus um, the couple who has been married for 55 years, when they say, I love you, is there a difference? The answer is yes. And what is that difference? It's commitment. It's commitment to the end. And this is what John is pointing to when he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus' love not only expressed in action here, but it was characterized by unconditional, unwavering commitment on behalf of his people. To be clear, John is not saying all other loves are wrong or void if they don't match up to this level of action or commitment. Rather, he is simply saying that from now on, all definitions of love will be understood from this one. That is, Jesus' love is the love that houses all other loves. He is how we know what love is and thus what he has called his followers to when he says, love one another. It is a love that finds an expression, an action, but it is a love that plants and roots, that stays committed to one another. For John, Christians must hold both the nature and the characteristic of this love together. That is, the love of Christians must not be theoretical, but it must be practical. It must not be intellectual or contained, but the kind that truly lands somewhere. It must move towards the places in this world where hurt and injustice abound, and it must land and plant itself there. This is John's encouragement and his instruction for his audience, and he is saying the same to us as well. 
So in what ways do we need to experience refreshment and, uh, and renewal in the gospel so that our love comes closer to reflecting the love that Jesus has for us? What ways do we need to experience that refreshment and renewal of the gospel? What ways does the church today need to pray for the Spirit to work in and through Christians in such a way that love and action actually become synonymous to those around them? That would be a wonderful thing for us to begin praying. And what ways does the church need to pray for the Spirit to give us the patience and perhaps maybe more so the compassion of Christ that truly drives commitment to others? See, this is what Maundy Thursday seeks to impress upon us. A refreshment of God's spirit that sends us into the lives of others. But what will the power be the power to do this, you ask, right? What, how, how are we going to love as Christ has loved us? It will be the spirit's work in our lives over and over convincing us that the love of God is real and true. It will be, again, I'll say this again, it will be the Spirit's work in our life. That's an important part of this sermon. It will be the Spirit's work in your life, convincing you over and over that the love of God is real and true. He will do this. And that his love is not just a, I'll do this once for you because I'm nice, but a love that says, I do this to make you mine. I had a friend uh, this past Sunday for the confession of sin talk about how in his ministry where he labored before, he, he always thought of the hardest part of the confession of sin and the assurance of forgiveness being the confession, right? Who wants to come in and own up to the ways that perhaps they haven't lived right, right? And then we always get to the assurance of forgiveness and that's the fun part. But what he found and what I would say is true for me personally, but also what I have found in my ministry experience is it's not the confession that's the hard part. We all know that there's something wrong with us. It's the assurance of forgiveness, and what is that? It's trusting that God's love for you is real and true over and over and over. That it's commitment. That it's not this one and done, oh, I'm tired of, of, of interceding for Ryan and that thing again. But actually going back to him over and over and over again and being told over and over that this is what it means for Jesus to love you. That he is committed to you. That this is what it looks like it's a love that says, I do this to make you mine. It's not a high school crush type of love, but it's a 55 years of marriage and counting type of love. If we come back to the upper room uh, in John 13, where Jesus fed his disciples bread and wine and he washed his disciples' feet, thereby acting out what his commitment to them would look like, which is actually giving his body, giving his blood for them and what it would do for them, which is actually cleansing them of their sin, we begin to see what John sees and we begin to hear and know what John knows. That when Jesus bends down to wash the mud off of their feet in that room, little did John even know that in 24 hours when Jesus was hanging on a cross, it wouldn't just be the dirt that would be removed from his feet, but it would be a sin as well. And when Jesus, as his blood pours out, it wouldn't just be water that cleans up John's feet. It would be the blood of Jesus that makes John whole, clean, the blood of Christ that does so, the true Passover lamb where all this begins for John in chapter 13, verse 1. But which means, though, that Jesus isn't just willing to offer his life in some martyr-type experience or some example of what love really is. It means Jesus was willing to take the mud, to take the dirt, to take the sin of John and the world, for that matter, on himself and experience the full consequences of that sin 
and the Father's holy wrath. That Jesus was willing to have the Father's face turn from him in a way that we will never know nor experience, but that the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, only point us to. See, for John, this means there is no more guessing anymore. God's love is real and it is true. His love is not a subjective love that comes and goes, but it is an objective love that is as fixed as the very nails that held Jesus's hands and feet to a cross for you. John is not so much drawing his audience away from other expressions of love. That's not his point, but but he is drawing them to the purest, to the deepest, and the fullest expression of love found only in Jesus Christ. No one, no one, John is saying, loves so completely and perfectly than Christ. And perhaps more importantly for us tonight, no one has loved you more completely and perfectly than Christ. So I ask, do you know this this evening? Does that resonate with you? Is it the hardest thing for you to believe? The good news is that the Spirit's job to work in your lives, it is the Spirit's job to work in your lives, convincing you over and over that the love of God is real and it's true that you might carry out more and more the command Jesus gives us this day. Do we need to do a better job of expressing our love for one another in action and deed? Of course, of course we do. Do we need to examine the characteristic of Christ's love, which is his unconditional, unwavering commitment to us, so that we too might reflect the same towards others in the way that we love? Absolutely. But that's not tonight's invitation. Tonight's invitation is to lend yourself to that love first. That in Jesus Christ, we dare to see ourselves as what? As Jesus sees you. As one so valuable and loved that he would give up everything he is and has in order to obtain you, to have you. This is how we know love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we think for a minute what it might have been like in that room for the disciples, for those who love Jesus deeply and dearly, to still have really no idea what your love for them meant. And so this puts us at a unique advantage where we have seen it, we have read about it, we have heard about it, we know it. But sometimes our heart still, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't get through. And so we ask you tonight that, that you would get through to us and, and the ways that we need to know that your love is real and that it's true. And I pray that in the process of that, that you would use the wonderful parable of the treasure in the field to convince us over and over what you are willing to give up, what you are willing to do in order to have us, your treasure. You've made it clear how you feel towards us. You've made it clear what your love is about as you died for us, as you give yourself away unconditionally and sacrificially. 
Would we drink deep of that love? Would we trust you in that, that we may then be able to go out and to love as you have asked us to do so? Expressing that in action, and that it may be reflective of the commitment that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.